And you can take your Bibles and turn them to the book of James chapter 3. James chapter 3. I, I hope it's not too much of a distraction for you that they took away my, my pulpit. Uh, it's, it's, it's right there. It's that beaker right there being used for, was used for the VBS, uh, Vacation Bible School Decorations. Uh, I've got this music stand here, which some of you, you who have been here for a while, you recognize this stand. We actually used this music stand before uh, we had that, uh, that pulpit built. I thought about maybe preaching from inside the beaker, but um, I thought that might be even a more of a distraction for you than the, than the music stand. So hopefully things will work out. <clears throat> James chapter 3. <clears throat> So the, the symbol for Harvard University is a, a shield with three face-up open books, and there's a word emblazoned on them. Do you know what that word is? Veritas. Veritas. <clears throat> it's a Latin word, and I think I heard it over here from, from Ken. It means truth. Uh, what you may not know is that at Harvard's founding in 1636, the slogan was more than just one word. It was veritas Christo et ecclesiae, a truth for Christ and the church. In addition, the idea of three books uh, in the logo goes back to its founding, but with one slight difference. Uh, two of those books were open and face up, but the third was open and face down. And the face-down book was meant to symbolize the limits of human reason and the need for God's revelation, uh, that there are truths that only God knows and, and things about reality that if we're to know them, they must be revealed to us by God. Indeed, the, uh, the 1646 Harvard's Rules and Precepts actually advised students that since the Lord alone gives wisdom let everyone seriously set himself by prayer to seek it of him. That was in the, the Harvard student handbook. My, how things have changed at Harvard, have they not? Uh, indeed, so many institutes of higher learning that were established on biblical principles, some of them were established to train ministers, uh, established on the idea that, that God is the measure of all things and that true knowledge and wisdom are bound up in Him, so many institutions have abandoned that principle. What happened? <clears throat> well, uh, in, the, in the 17th century, not only did Harvard University happen, but the Enlightenment happened. And that was a period of explosive discovery and, and scientific advancement in the Western world, and God in the minds of many became increasingly irrelevant, and man in the minds of many became the measure of all things. He became increasingly great, and man on his own, it was thought, apart from any deity or supernatural revelation, could unlock the mysteries of reality through his own reason and through his own wisdom. And, and that idea permeated all of Western civilization. As a matter of fact, in 1878, the dean of Harvard's medical school mocked the idea of that third book being face down, and eventually in time, that third book was turned over, face up, as a reflection of the growing cultural sentiment that, yes, man was the measure of all things and not God. And Christo et Ecclesia was dropped from the motto. Uh, so now all you have is three open books, and all you have is one word, veritas. Christ has been dropped. And if Christ has been dropped, there's no need for the church. And so without Christ and the church, man alone is left to determine on his own where truth and wisdom are to be found. 
We have a very high estimation of ourselves, don't we? But that's not a new story. That's really an old story, as old as the human race. Remember uh, what the Apostle Paul told us back in Romans chapter 1? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. That's the tragic story of humanity. It's a tale of two wisdoms, and we have rejected the wisdom of God, and we followed after our own wisdom, thinking that it's superior. And, and whichever kind of wisdom you opt for, one or the other, it's going to have a drastic impact. It will determine the course of a university, of a marriage, of a church, of your entire life. There are two ways to live, and James is going to help us discern the difference. So, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious and wise God. We are in James chapter 3, picking up where we left off last week, we're now in verse 13, and we're going to read on down through the end of the chapter. God's wisdom says this, "'Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere." and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, this morning you have a word of wisdom for us, and so I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and the faith to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the title of this sermon is Faith Works which is really the essence of what James is aiming to teach us, that if you have genuine faith in Jesus, it actually looks like something practical in day-to-day life. Uh, You see, James has a concern uh, that there were some in these churches that he was writing to that were confused about this, uh, who were professing faith in Jesus, and yet there was nothing in their lives to show for it. Now, that's not just a first-century problem, is it? There are people everywhere who claim uh, to be Christians who don't follow Christ or listen to His Word. And so, in response to this concern, James in chapter 1 says, don't just be hearers of the Word, be doers. Take what you hear and put it into practice. In James chapter 2, he gets to the heart of the issue and he shows us that faith without works is dead and doesn't benefit you to merely profess an intellectual belief in God that doesn't actually move your life in the direction of God's way is totally worthless. While we are saved through faith alone, genuine faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by the works that it produces. Last week, we started chapter 3, and we learned that faith also produces godly words, as the focus of the first half of the chapter was taming the tongue. But now, James shows us that faith doesn't just produce a certain kind of works, and it doesn't just produce a certain kind of word, but it also produces a certain kind of 
wisdom. And James teaches us three things related to wisdom. The first thing that he wants to show us is that true faith is seen in actions. In verse 3, excuse me, 13, James asks, who is wise and who is understanding among you? Now, James seems to be circling back around to this concern that we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 3. Do you remember that? If you look up, he, uh, he says in verse 1, not many of you should become teachers. Uh, these churches were full of people who were very eager to dispense their wisdom upon everyone. They were eager to talk, they were eager to give their opinion, but they were not eager to listen. They were not teachable. In fact, in chapter 1, James says, you all need to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger because people were very eager to exalt their own opinions and very quick to get angry if they didn't get their own way. And James now is pushing them, he's challenging them when he asks them, who is wise among you? Because they had wrong ideas about what wisdom really, really was, as we do today. Sometimes we equate wisdom with gray hair or intelligence, IQ, or with great eloquence, or or with a head that is crammed with Bible information. That's not biblical wisdom. Wisdom is living life in a way that is governed by the wisdom of God as revealed in His Word. And it's knowing how this revelation intersects with and applies to everyday life. That's wisdom. And what James is about to say isn't, of course, exclusively for would-be teachers in the church. It's for every single person in the church, because any Christian can be tempted to think himself as wiser than he really is. Uh, Some Christians have a tendency to hold their own opinions and their own preferences way too highly. Uh, There may be issues where the Bible isn't explicitly clear in regards to what we should do. But sometimes Christians can be so dogmatic about their position and their way that they want to bind the consciences of others to do what they do because they think their way is superior and they've got all the answers for everyone else. And so they'll get on crusades about issues where where Christians should be able to charitably disagree, uh, unfairly judging those who have a, a different point of view, issues like homeschool or public school or, or how a family should handle the, the whole dating thing with their teenagers or, or whether or not Christians should participate in Halloween or, or should we use an electric guitar in church or not. I vote for the electric guitar. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, though. Uh, we, we all should seek to have a biblically informed opinion on all kinds of things like that and more. But let's be honest, there are some issues where, where maybe it's not as clear as we might initially think. And sometimes those kinds of issues, those kinds of issues are the ones that end up causing the most friction and the most fighting in churches where opinions held by overly dogmatic people who deem themselves wise and, and they feel the need to aggressively pressure everyone else to agree with them. And James comes along and says, hold up, cool your jets, wait a minute, Who really is wise and understanding among you? How do you identify the wise? It's not through PhDs or age or by finding the most opinionated or theologically articulate people in the church. Instead, James says, by his good conduct, this is verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works, let him show his works. Boy, that sounds familiar. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
That's surprising in a way when thinking about wisdom, because you would think that one puts on his display of wisdom by just being like Yoda, just sitting there and, and, and verbally pontificating on all the mysteries of the universe and throwing out pithy one-liners. And if he talks backwards like Yoda, that's extra points, you're even wiser. But James says wisdom isn't just talk. It's about your works. Uh, Being able to talk a lot or being a theological egghead doesn't automatically mean that you're wise. Nothing against theological eggheads. I long to be one. And yet, on the other hand, I've met people who are very informed biblically and they could run rings around me talking about certain theological doctrines, and yet they are some of the nastiest and ugliest people that I have ever been around. Massively prideful, often are the first ones to violate what James was talking about earlier in chapter 3 about taming the tongue, and they're not wise. True wisdom, James says, is manifested in how you live your life and how you treat others. James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works. That the, the Greek words translated as good conduct could be translated as beautiful life. Uh, that word beautiful in the Greek is where we get our, our word calligraphy from, beautiful writing. And here James is saying that the wisdom of a person is demonstrated in his beautiful life and a well-ordered, admirable life that is consistently making good moral choices governed by the Word of God. So, while knowing the Bible doesn't automatically mean you're wise, you can't be wise without knowing the Bible. But you also can't be wise without being born again, uh, without God spiritually making you into a new creation. Uh, What James describes back in chapter 1, verse 18, you can look there again with me if you want, where he says, "...of His own will God brought us forth..." by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Very important verse to always have in the back of your mind when you're reading the book of James. If you're a real Christian, that means God has birthed you through His Word and is now shaping you into something beautiful, shaping your life into something beautiful, namely into the image of Christ. And there's something about the wise person's life that is attractive, that demonstrates something of the the goodness and the character of God. Not, Not perfectly, of course, but it will be increasingly seen in the one who is growing in wisdom. And James is challenging us by by asking, is there something representative of the calligraphy of God on your life? If so, you're on the path of wisdom. James says, let him show his works in the meekness or humility of wisdom. Meekness is a countercultural concept then and now. now. Now, we tend to think of meekness as weakness, as somebody who doesn't have any backbone, as a, as a wimpy, mealy-mouthed kind of person. In the ancient world, meekness or humility was not prized by the Greeks. They, they thought that it, it signaled a servility that would be unworthy of a strong and confident person. In the modern world, meekness isn't prized either. Uh, you won't find much meekness on talk radio, in the political discourse, or on Twitter debates. But it should be found in your life as a Christian. And according to the Bible, meekness actually is not weakness. 
Instead, meekness is power or strength under control. That's a good definition of meekness. Meekness doesn't mean that you never fight, but it also doesn't mean that you ruthlessly and mercilessly fight at any time for any reason. Always fighting for your own way. Always seeking to be proven right regardless of whom you crush and hurt in the process. Meekness has the wisdom to know how to pick the right battles and when to lay down their arms. And meekness never lords authority over others in a, in a harsh and domineering kind of way. A humble meekness recognizes how utterly dependent we are on the grace of God and how undeserving we are of it. It recognizes that we're unable to achieve spiritual fulfillment or to successfully chart our course in the, in the world apart from His wisdom. And this humility before God should then translate into humility towards others along with works that are infused with meekness. Now, ultimately, the call for you and I to be meek is a call to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, wasn't a sinner, but He was meek and humble in His disposition towards God the Father and in His dealings with man. Jesus was meek, but He wasn't weak, and He wasn't a wimp. He was very strong, and He was very powerful, and yet at the same time, He was very gentle and very humble. You think about this, the, the same person who rebuked the winds and the waves and calmed the storm and the weather actually obeyed him. The same person who drove the greedy money changers out of the temple with a whip. Uh, the same man who boldly stared down the, those Pharisees who actually wanted to murder him. The same man who confronted demons, demons who were terrified of him, by the way. This same man is also the same man who gently and tenderly scooped up little children in his arms to bless them. He is the same man who had compassion for the masses, and he said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle, or meek, as some translations say, and lowly in heart. He's the same man who when he was confronted by Roman guards in the garden, he knocked them backwards with the power of his word. But then he allowed himself to be bound and held captive by them because he trusted in the Father's plan. That's power under control. That's meekness. And for those with eyes to see, his life was a beautiful life. There was something powerfully attractive about Jesus as the, as the wisdom of God and the, and the calligraphy of God was displayed in His life through His humble works. And Jesus calls His people to be meek with Him. He actually says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not the ones who are braggadocious, not the bullies, not the tyrants, not the ones who step on others to elevate themselves. That would be working according to the wisdom of this world. Not the needlessly aggressive and violent. Those are the ones, by the way, who seem to win in the short term and get their way at least in the short term. But Jesus says in the end, it will, it will be the meek. It will be the, the gentle, the, the humble. These one day will be the rulers of the cosmos. Those who humble themselves will be exalted later and are shown to be wise right now. 
So true wisdom is seen in actions. Now, before going on further to describe true wisdom, James now is going to take a detour to show us another kind of wisdom. It's a false wisdom, which, which is going to serve as a helpful contrast with true wisdom to help us see more clearly what true wisdom looks like. And so, so the second point here is that false wisdom is hellish and leads to disorder. Look at verse 14. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. There is a such thing as a godly ambition. But godly ambition is Christ-oriented as we seek Christ-likeness and Christ-glory. But the opposite of that is, is, is selfish ambition, which is self-oriented. It's a selfishly competitive attitude. It's a desire to promote oneself, one's position, one's opinion, or one's preferences without any reference to God or to the genuine needs of others. It's all about me because, hey, why care about other people's opinions and preferences and needs when mine are more important? And, of course, I know that none of you have ever been like that, right? I guess I'm the only one. Uh, one commentator says, what's, what's happening here is an undermining uh, of one another and a fighting for your own rights. John MacArthur says that what James is describing here is a harsh, bitter self-centeredness that produces a resentful attitude toward everybody else, and it's a bitter, jealous attitude uh, towards anyone who threatens their little self-focused world, their territory, their accomplishments, their reputation. And this bitter jealousy can rear its ugly head when other people challenge our own ideas and preferences and, and get in the way of the things that we want. That's why in chapter 4, James is going to take this discussion where he does, uh, because this bitter attitude is leading to all kinds of angry fights in the churches that he's writing to. You can look ahead with me a little bit. There's a little bit of spoiler here. Uh, in chapter 4, he says right there at the top of the chapter, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says that there are these overwhelming desires you have that you're not getting. Other members of the church are getting in the way of what you want, so you fight and you murder. Not literal murder, of course. If that was the case, James would have no one to write to. <laughs> Instead, he's talking about the bitter attitude in, in, in their hearts that's causing them to lash out at one another in a hateful, murderous kind of spirit. And yes, that happens in churches not just in the first century, but today. You may have seen it happen. I was talking to someone not long ago who told me about a church that split over an argument about whether or not the sanctuary should continue to have pews or if they should have individual chairs like the ones that y'all are sitting in right now. Seriously, that, that, was, a, that was a church fight. Uh, people had ideas and opinions about certain things and there were, there were evidently some who had to have their own way, and that led to the split. Now, now don't get me wrong. There are definitely things that are worth fighting for. Not, not seating, but there, there are some things that are worth fighting for. If someone at Harbin starts teaching that Jesus is not God, that's a fight that I'm going to jump into. 
because that's a spiritual life or death situation. But oftentimes, oftentimes the fights and the division in churches are over things that are less urgent, like the style of music, or what kinds of ministries should get the most attention. Somebody might, be, somebody might say, well, I, I heard Carrie talk about Rosa Sharon ministry in the announcements. Well, I, I'm doing some stuff. Nobody's talking about that. Nobody's, nobody's putting that in the, in the bulletin. Well, what about, what about me? What about what I think is important? I'm not saying anybody's doing that. I'm just giving that as, as an example. That, that kind of thing does happen in churches. Sometimes people in churches get angry when they don't have the kind of influence or leadership or ministry opportunities that they think that they should have. And we can become jealous of, of those who do. Uh, these, these sorts of uh, uh, desires can even uh, brew inside of, of, of pastors and ministers, and, and pastors can get insecure, and they, and they can start, you know, can, comparing the, the uh, you know, how many people are at your church, you know, how, how many members do, you know, do, do you have? And there's this selfish ambition that can arise amongst pastors and this, and this wicked competitive spirit. We've got to be careful of that. I was, I was driving here this morning. This didn't happen to me this morning, but I could see how there could be an open door if I wasn't vigilant on guard. I was driving here this morning. I was listening to Parkside Church's uh, live stream and listening to Alistair Begg, who is just such a tremendous preacher. And I'm thinking, man, I wish I could preach like that. And you know, he's so good at, you know, just giving illustrations, and the crowd is right there with them, and they're, and they're laughing when they're supposed to laugh, and they're, you know, attentive and, and all those sorts of things. And, and uh, there's nothing wrong with, with me, you know, noticing those gifts, but if I'm not vigilant and careful, uh, the devil could use that to, to get, a, get a foothold there in my, in my heart and stir up this kind of selfish ambition and this, this competitive spirit. Well, Ebenezer Church, they're, they're down the road here. They're growing faster than we are, and they are. Well, God protect me from that evil, wicked, selfishly ambitious spirit. We can become so enamored in church life with our own way and what we think is best that we've got to have it at all costs, even if it means that we will actually sin to get it. Even if it means we will be divisive or manipulative or hurtful to others in the process of getting what we want. Uh, Those same people who know lots of theology with heads full of doctrine, who know what the Bible says about meekness and humility and love, will set all of that aside and they will trust in their own wisdom and in their own way of doing things, drawing their swords because what they want is more important than loving others. That's the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that James is talking about. And he says this kind of attitude is not a wisdom from above. But it is the ethic of the world, isn't it? Uh, Grasping and and craving and, and fighting for what I think should be mine. Indeed, that attitude actually can look like wisdom from the world's perspective because this kind of person knows how to get their own way. They know how to intimidate others to make things happen. Or maybe they use passive-aggressive tactics, you know, giving the the silent treatment or whatever. Uh, They know how to play hardball when necessary and manipulate things in such a way where their opinion can win the day. And to many, that looks like good leadership. That looks like good influence. So they fight for their preferences, and they get their way, and they seem very successful and very wise. We see this in the secular world. We see it sometimes in the, in, the, in the corporate world. We most definitely see it in the political world. And sometimes we see this in churches. 
But that's not how things are meant to operate in the kingdom of God. Real wisdom is not intimidating or manipulating people to embrace your opinion. It's not about fighting and grasping to to get your way at all costs. That's not meekness. That's not humility. And so it's not true wisdom. In fact, it's a lie. That's exactly why James says at the end of verse 14, do not boast, do not brag, and be false to the truth. Don't boast and brag about your ability to get your way and get things done and call that wisdom. You're living a lie. James says in verse 15, what you're doing really is earthly. In other words, it's bound to a limited human perspective. It's unspiritual. In other words, it's not godly. And then James goes all the way and says what you're doing is demonic. And and some might be thinking, well, that's kind of extreme, James. Come on now. But you see, something that is demonic doesn't have to have horns and 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 a pitchfork and a tail. Something demonic can actually look really good, really sensible, really pragmatic, really wise. Like when Jesus was talking about how he had to suffer and die to fulfill his mission, and you know what happened. Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. And he says, no, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. And, and folks, on one level, that seems reasonable. <laughs> Jesus is an innocent man. Why should he be crucified? Jesus is doing good in Israel. Why should he not continue to do good? Jesus is the king. Should he not wear a crown instead of a cross? Doesn't make any sense. Folks, that's human wisdom. That's pragmatism. That that seems good and right and sensible to Peter. And because it seems right, he's going to fight for what he wants, even if it means going against the word and the wisdom of God. Consider Peter's pride and arrogance in that moment. He has the gall to rebuke Jesus. And, and he says, no, Lord. What? Can the words no and Lord even go together in that way in the same sentence? Peter isn't treating uh, Jesus as Lord. Peter is treating Peter as Lord. And he's essentially saying, my way is better than yours, Jesus. Let me talk some sense into you. Uh, if, if you just do what I say, Jesus, if you just listen to my wisdom, Jesus, if you just, just think about how I think things should go down, then everything would be great. You see, earthly wisdom isn't just thinking our way is better than other people's way, but that our way is even better than God's way. And that is at the heart of demonic wisdom. It's self-referential. It's about my plans, my preferences, my desires, and ends justify the means to get them. It's about all those things that I want to the exclusion of what anyone else says, even God. And that's satanic. That's exactly why Jesus turns around and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He, He is hearing the wisdom of the devil. He's hearing that demonic wisdom speaking through the mouth of Peter. And he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And the lesson there, folks, is that you can't trust your own feelings. So get what Disney and Hollywood tell you out of your head. <laughs> you can't trust your heart. Follow your heart. That, that's the stupidest advice. Don't, don't do that. You can't trust your own feelings and your own preferences uh, 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 un, unconnected to the, to the Word of God, untethered to, to the wisdom of God. You can't trust your own wisdom about what is best. 
You've you got to listen and submit yourself to, to the Word and to the wisdom of God, to the revelation of God. That's why the Bible says, folks, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not the acceptance of all of the desires of your heart is the beginning of wisdom. But sometimes we look at God's Word, and it's hard for us to understand in our, in our own wisdom. And then what we do is we, we consider our own Word and our own ideas about what is best, and guess what? That seems to make so much more sense in our minds, kind of like it did with Peter. And so, what do we do then? Well, we ditch God's Word, and we embrace a different Word that we think is better. In the moment, lashing out at your spouse in anger after they disrespect you seems like a reasonable response. Well, she did me wrong. I've got to stand up for myself and for my rights. I can't be pushed around like that. Uh, it, 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 it seems so much more reasonable and wise than what Jesus says about turning the other cheek and about mercy and, and all those sorts of things. In the moment, telling a small little lie seems like the best thing to do. Because if I tell the truth, that, that's just going to make the day a lot less pleasant for everybody involved. Including me, of course. But everybody else, too. Uh, so, 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 what they don't know won't hurt them. That seems, in some situations, a lot more reasonable and wise than the Bible's exhortation to not lie. Or on a larger scale, you've got entire churches and denominations, and they are grappling with the issue of sexual ethics. And they may say, well, well, it seems reasonable that two men should be able to love one another and get married. And it seems harsh that God would deny them of that. And so what do these churches and what do these denominations do? They ditch God's revelation about marriage, and they do what seems right and wise in their own eyes. It's exactly what's going on. And that's why wisdom, like everything else in the book of James, is it really comes down to a matter of faith. Faith works, yes, and faith is wise. Uh, do we have the faith? Do we have the faith to listen to what God says in every area of our life, not just picking and choosing? the things that it addresses that we agree with, and then, the, and then ditching the things that go against our, our own wisdom. It's a, it's a matter of, of faith. Do we trust that God knows best, that God is right? Or will we instead exalt our own wisdom and our own feelings and our own interpretation of reality that is untethered from the Word of God? Isn't that issue at the root of the very first sin of humanity? God, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and He gave them everything they needed. And, and He told them that if, if they go a different way, if they go against Him, they'll surely die. And then the devil comes along, and he says, no, 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 you're, you're not going to die. As a matter of fact, actually, things will get better uh, if you go against God. Uh, God see, because God is holding something back from you. He's holding something good from you. He, he's holding something that you need, and you need to reach out, and you need to take it for yourself. And do you remember what was going on in Eve's mind as she is under satanic attack and she is listening to satanic wisdom? Text says in Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and check this out, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. 
she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What happened? They saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. They thought that there was a better way, a better wisdom that could be obtained on the path of rebellion against God and His Word. And it seemed good to them. It seemed right to them. It seemed to make so much sense. It seemed like God was being harsh and mean and unloving and holding things back from denying those, them those things that they thought that they should have. And so they would no longer submit to God's Word in faith. And they traded in the wisdom of God for their own. And in the process, unleashed death and hell upon all mankind. Congratulations, that's your wisdom. You see, to exchange God's wisdom for demonic wisdom, to trade in God's thoughts for your own, which is implied in the change of that Harvard logo, uh, to do that is always, 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 always a bad trade. It never works out well in the end. That's why Solomon said, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. James says in verse 16 that the fruits of hellish wisdom is disorder and every vile practice. Now, isn't that what we see in a culture that has rejected the wisdom of God? Vile practices and disorder. Uh, you, You have an American culture that has increasingly rejected the Word of God and has embraced its own wisdom, and so then what do you have? You have mass confusion and disorder. You have people that are passionately fighting for the rights of animals, and those same people are fighting for the rights to murder children in the womb. How does that even make sense? Uh, We have laws on the books that someone who kills a pregnant woman can be charged with double homicide, but on the other hand, we got a Supreme Court judge who said a pregnant woman is not a mother. It's maddening. It's disorder and leads to vile practices. Uh, We reject the wisdom of God, and and as a result, we become a nation full of otherwise intelligent people who are confused about what a man is and what a woman is, and and debating about restroom signs and and who can use what bathroom. Uh, We've got high school boys pretending to be girls and destroying real girls in athletic competition. Folks, it's absolute disorder and insanity. I'm not making fun of this. My heart is torn up over this. But this is the fruit of the enlightenment. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's how it works every time. When you walk away from the wisdom of God, and so there is disorder and every vile practice, but not just for the culture. Let's remember, let's get back into James in the context here. James is first and foremost concerned about the church. The church is vulnerable to this, and the stakes are high at Harbin's church regarding the kind of wisdom that we pursue together as a church body. Because to trust in human wisdom in the church and to descend into bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and fighting others and ultimately fighting God to get our own way, it flings the church doors wide open to disorder, chaos, confusion, and every vile practice. So I pray that we have ears to hear the wisdom of God this morning, 
Well, that's the fruit of the false hellish wisdom from below, and it is against that backdrop that we now more clearly see and appreciate the genuine wisdom, which is heavenly. It's from above and leads to peace and righteousness. So what does the the calligraphy of God look like on the life of a mature and wise believer? James gives us a list. I'm just going to hit on on a few of James's descriptions, and I'll leave you to do further study on these words on your own. Uh, He says in verse 17 that the wisdom from above is first pure. Pure. Purity here carries the idea of a single-minded devotion to God, uh, not mixed with the impurities of self-centered, self-oriented desire. It's the opposite of double-mindedness that James has already warned us about in chapter 1, and he'll come back to it again in chapter 4. If you skip ahead and look at chapter 4, verse 8, James says, "'Purify your hearts, you double-minded.'" In other words, repent of your mixed motives, remove yourself from the center, put God back in the center, submit yourself and your thinking to God and His Word. That is the beginning of wisdom. James then says that genuine genuine wisdom is peaceable. It's peaceable. Uh, This is the opposite of the combative nature of demonic wisdom. Uh, Of course, being peaceable doesn't mean peace at the expense of the gospel. Or, or those truths that are the essentials of the Christian faith, but, but, but it doesn't, and it doesn't mean that you refrain from sharing opinions. It doesn't mean that you refrain from even engaging in respectful debate about a matter. But what it does mean is that you would never let things descend into a bitter feud, and you'll show your kindness and patience and charity towards those who disagree. You can be calm and at ease because in your meekness, you trust God and His providence and plan, and so you aren't easily agitated. Next on the list, James says, true wisdom is gentle. Uh, The Greek word there carries the idea of having a willingness to yield to others. Boy, that, that trait is becoming less and less scarce, isn't it? not just in the world, but, but among Christians. Have you ever known people who are just unwilling to budge on anything big or small? <laughs> and they, they'll just plant their flag with a my way or the highway kind of attitude? But James says the truly wise are slow to demand. Uh, they're patient and slow to fight. But so many Christians have theological chips on their shoulders, and they are just always itching for a fight. Again, there are times that we should engage in combat, but we should not be combative. And there's a difference. Charles Spurgeon said, don't go around the world with your fist doubled up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers. And oh, how many Christians need to get that, especially Christians on Facebook and Twitter. Sometimes the social media feeds of Christians look no different than, the, than raging, insulting politicians. Looks no different than the world. Y'all, I thought the church was supposed to like affect and impact and change the world, not the other way around. How different this all is from the exhortation of Paul. Paul, by the way, who was not afraid to fight when necessary, nevertheless exhorted believers to uh, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Not just the people that you like, not just the people that you agree with all the time. 
but to the people, maybe especially to the people that irritate you and annoy you. Another mark of wisdom on James's list here is, is being open to reason. That means you're teachable. You're willing to listen to what someone else has to say. You're not always talk, talk, talking all the time. You're, you're quick to listen, and you're slow to speak. James also says that the calligraphy of God on your life will be full of mercy, full of mercy. Mercy is holding back from people that which they deserve. If I'm wise, I'm going to constantly remember that I have offended God in my sin way more than somebody else has offended me. And yet, nevertheless, God was merciful to me, wasn't He? And so I'm going to turn around now, and I'm going to extend that mercy to others. And my refusal to show mercy is evidence of either two things. One, that I'm a massively immature Christian, and I have not yet fully grasped the, the, the depth of, of, of the grace that I needed to be saved. Or, it's evidence maybe that I've never received the mercy of God in the first place, and I'm not a, even a genuine believer. Notice at the end of the list, James says wisdom is sincere. In other words, it's, it's not hypocritical. The, the truly wise person has integrity and is on the outside what she is on the, uh, is on the inside what she is on the outside. And then James concludes by giving us the overall effects of true wisdom. While the wisdom from below produced disorder in every vile deed, what does the wisdom from above produce? He says in verse 18, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So here's how it works. The wise person goes through life sowing peace, making peace with those around them uh, by, by means of all the character qualities that we just read about in verse 17. And when you live that kind of beautiful life, the long-term result is a harvest of righteousness. So it's the exact opposite of what James was saying about the results of the wisdom from below. It's an abundance of righteous, beautiful behavior in yourself and those in your sphere of influence. The one who is bitterly jealous and selfishly ambitious leaves behind in his wake nothing but a trail of pain and broken relationships some of them bouncing around from one church to another, letting off hand grenades and things not working out, and then them moving on to the next one and not reconciling with anybody. But the one who is a humble and wise peacemaker leaves behind a legacy of a righteous harvest and influence in their lives, in their families, in their friendships, and in their churches. The Apostle Paul, following James' lead, uh, tells you to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There it is again, selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility or meekness. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And, and you may wonder, well, how in the world do I do that? I'm glad you asked, because Paul tells you. He goes on to say that you do it by looking to Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Contrary to bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, Jesus set aside his comforts and his rights and the things that were due him. 
Jesus was the exemplar of meekness, of power under control. Uh, this, this man who was God, who formed galaxies with his words, the, the same man allowed himself to be beaten and mocked and spat upon and hung on a cross. And as he hung there, he could have given a violent word and incinerated all of his enemies in a moment. And he could have got himself down off that cross. But instead, he speaks a gentle word, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is power under control. And thank God Jesus was in control, and he remained on that cross. Because if Jesus had operated according to the wisdom of the world, if Jesus had listened to the wisdom that Peter was giving him, you, me, Peter, and the whole world would all be in hell right now. Because God, in His wisdom, sent Jesus to the cross to suffer the wrath of hell in our place. The hell that you and I deserve for our bitter jealousy and our selfish ambition and our pride. And if anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ, who the Scripture says became to us wisdom from God, If anyone places their faith in this man who died and rose again, that person has forgiveness of sins, freedom from the fear of hell, and the promise of a home with God the Father in heaven. And so if you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's your first step towards wisdom. doesn't matter anything else you do. Nothing else you do will be wise until you take that first step. And if you've received Him already then God is calling you to imitate Him, imitate Him, imitate Him in meekness and humility and love, because, because only when people in churches and in marriages and in friendships sow in peace, only then will a harvest of righteousness be produced. Think about how your relationships and your marriage and your church can be impacted and 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 changed as you put into practice the wisdom of God as as talked about by by James here. He says a harvest of righteousness will be produced, and that, James says, is a wisdom that comes by faith. Let's pray.